chapter 13. But for the most part, all of us have at least had some kind of a touch or a taste of Romans chapter 11. And you already know that it's very dense. It's, 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 it's just packed with all kinds of, of, of concepts and imagery and Old Testament Scripture. And so tonight, we're going to, uh, to go through the entire chapter 11 of the book of Romans. And I'm going to ask that you uh, to work really hard with me as we pay attention and, and keep our mind focused on the argumentation that Paul is going through as he reveals the mystery of God in Romans 11. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that You have revealed this mystery to us and that it is a mystery, Father, that in our understanding it and how we're a part of it just completely changes our lives and calls us to a higher significance and purpose in this life as we live out the ramifications of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we pray, Father, not just to be diligent in our study of Your Word, but to be diligent in living out those implications and those ramifications in such a way that as Phil has read for us tonight, that there is great praise that just comes ringing out of our heart and, and, and sails forth from our soul as we think about the greatness of the Gospel and how it absolutely changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. Father, help us to understand that fact more deeply tonight by giving us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the world is a place of mysteries. Some mysteries are profound. Some mysteries are not so profound. Why is it called a hamburger when it's made out of beef? Why do you put suits in a garment bag and garments in a suitcase? Why do we drive on a parkway and park on a driveway? Why are they called apartments when they're stuck together? Why are they called buildings when they're already finished? Shouldn't they be called builts? Why is abbreviated such a long word? Why is a boxing ring square? Why did we put a man on the moon before we put wheels on luggage? And why is the slowest movement on the highway called rush hour? Well, not very profound mysteries when you think about it. But the world is full of mysteries that we may never get to the bottom of or even understand if we do. But not so with the mystery that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Now, just right here at the very beginning, we want to talk about the difference between a biblical mystery and the Agatha Christie type mysteries. A biblical mystery is not like those, those whodunit mysteries where you have to figure it out on your own. For Paul and for others that write an inspired word to us today, for Paul, a God mystery is something that we do not understand until God reveals the answer. It's something to be known, but at God's time. And the God mystery is all very, very humbling because it's not something that you can figure out on your own. It's something that God is the author of and it's something that God reveals and you're not going to understand it or see it clearly until God Himself reveals it. It's all very humbling. And it's with the mystery of God's work in His human project that we, we end the first section of Romans tonight. Now, what we need to do, it's very important, and this is where we're going to be moving very quickly, we need to place 
Romans chapter 11 and this mystery in the context of everything that Paul has written beginning in chapter 1. Paul writes that a power has come into the world and it's called the Gospel because it's good news. And it's a power that has to do with Gentiles and Jews. Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles and Jews both. Chapter 1, verse 16. It is a power that saves people, both Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because humans are under the wrath of God because of sin. You remember that original sin. They did not trust the Word of God. They did not recognize God for the Creator God, powerful God, sovereign God that He is. They did not trust God's Word. Rebellion came into the world and so did death. And so humans experience the consequence of that sin that breaks their relationship with their Creator. In the words of Augustine, sin becomes the punishment of sin. And God sort of steps back and and allows there to be some space where the ramifications of that sin can be felt, the consequences of it can be felt on a daily basis. Some exchange the truth of God for a life. And they wreck their life in doing it. That knowledge of God that every human being possessed that has been forfeited or has been denied and it's exchanged for a lie. And human beings fill their lives up with idols. Others try to live a morally good life. In this Roman society that Paul is writing to, they would look at a lot of the decadence and the immorality that was going into the world, and they would agree. And one of the big questions in Roman society at the time that Romans was being written by Paul was the answer to the question, what does it mean to be a good man or to live a good life? And so trying to figure that morality out was a very, very important thing. But merely being better, according to Paul, is not the same thing as being innocent from guilt. And then thirdly, human beings are so fallen that even possessing the Word of God only stirs up the presence of sin in the human heart. And this is where God's righteousness comes to the forefront of of human hope. God is righteous in all of His actions. That is His, His core being. He is holy. He is right in all that He does. And because He is right in all that He does, part of His righteousness is restoring us to covenant. And restoring us, in other words, to, to righteousness. How? Hear these words again. Paul writes, now apart, from the law of the, uh, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have what? Faith in Jesus. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. To have faith in Jesus is to give up trying to save yourself And to once again put your trust in God. To trust God to do it. And when that happens, there is peace with God, which means that we are no longer enemies with Him. And that there is a power of God at work in our life, which is Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7. And that there is the experience of the continual presence of God. 
Romans chapter 8. And just as Paul gets really, really going, he begins to pump the brakes a little bit here. And he comes up um, with, with, with the need to the, answer the question, how do you explain the entire Old Testament from a Jewish perspective in light of everything that he's been saying? It was Israel, and it was the prophets, and it was Moses, and it was Abraham, and it was the covenants that were made, and the promises, and all of these things. It was Israel, 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 and now it's Jesus. And so the question, can God's Word be trusted not to fail, is asked again. And, and there's the issue. Can God's Word be trusted? And that's where we are in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. God's Word did not fail. It was not perceived by those who were given every resource to see it. To understand that salvation was never by DNA, that it was, it was never Ishmael but Isaac, and that salvation was never by works, that it was nothing that came to us because of works of merit or works of righteousness. It was Jacob over Esau. It had always been about God's compassion and God's mercy. Chapter 9, verse 15. It was God's power being shown to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh would not humble himself before the power that was crippling him and crippling his nation in an effort to make them understand the power and the place and the sovereignty of God in all of the universe. Pharaoh was like that mound of clay that would not submit to the will of the potter. In Israel, in Romans chapter 10, like Pharaoh did not submit to God's righteousness. Israel, who had adoption to sonship and had ex the experience of the divine glory, uh, the, the presence of God, had the knowledge of the covenant and had received the law and had the, the experience of temple worship and, and the, the assurance of the promises and the patriarchs and the very fact that the Messiah would come up right through the middle of them, yet they did not perceive the Gospel. They did not perceive... That Christ is the culmination. That Christ is the culmination of the law that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And so they stumbled. And so they stumbled. Even though it was so near, the Word was so near, it was good news that was ignored. But remember, God is what? Righteous. God is righteous, which brings us now to Romans chapter 11 and the end of the argument. First thing he says is that Israel has not been rejected. No, 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 no. Israel has not been rejected. Romans chapter 11 verse 1, did God reject His people? By no means. And just to kind of get the ball rolling, Paul gives four proofs that God has not rejected Israel. The first one is personal. Paul says, look at me. I'm in relationship with God because of my faith in Christ. And I am an Israelite, and I am a descendant of Abraham, and I am a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And then number two, he says, think about it this way. Theologically, God did not reject the people that He foreknew. Paul does not write that, it, it, that He did not reject those of His people He foreknew. He is talking about in, uh, he's not talking about individuals, but the nation. That there is a relationship that God has with His people. And then number three, historically, 
And here he goes to the, the Elijah story in 1 Kings chapter 19. You know the story, Elijah has, has, has been on the run because of the, 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 the battle on, on Mount Carmel for who is really the sovereign God of the universe. It is not the, the, the God of Baal. It is not Baal that is God. It's not the Asherah that is God. It is Yahweh who is God. And all of those prophets of Abel and Asherah are killed. Elijah is on the run. And he goes to a place where he believes that he is the last one in the entire world that is faithful to God. And God takes care of him. And God gives him some space. And God takes him to a place where he can really hear God. That's part of what it means for, you know, God was, was not in, in the storm. And, but that God was in that little tiny whisper. He takes Elijah to a place where he, he, can, he can hear what it is that God speaks to him. And what God says to Elijah is that what looked like a national apostasy was not in reality a complete apostasy, but there was a remnant. There were 7,000 faithful that Elijah did not know about. And then the fourth proof was contemporary. He says, you know, in the present, there is a remnant who have received grace in verse 5. You go to the end of Acts, you know, Paul is making one of his last trips to Jerusalem. And he's reporting to the brothers there about all the great things that are happening as he and others have gone out into the, the known world at the time. They have, they have less, left Palestine and they have gone into the, the empire of Rome, into all of those major cities, and have begun to preach the gospel. And, and churches are being planted and people are turning to God and people are being baptized. And, and, and James and, and others begin to speak about the greatness of what God is doing in the world and bringing the Gentiles in. But they say to Paul in verse 20, You see, brother, how many what? Thousands of Jews have believed. In the present, there was a remnant that Paul says has received relationship with God through grace. But what Paul argues here in essence is the same thing that he has argued in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Is that Christ is the rock that either makes your life or breaks your life. Your life rises or falls on what you do with the rock that is Christ. Christ is the rock that either makes or breaks your life. So he continues in chapter 11. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Circle that word hardened in your Bible. You, you know, from time to time, you, you, you sort of draw back. You're reading and reading and reading, and all of a sudden you come to a word that makes you kind of draw back and to contemplate. I mean, you, you think about all of the things that Paul has written about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in chapter 9, and then all of a sudden in chapter 11, he gets to the place where he writes about the hardening of the hearts of the people of Israel. The irony cannot be lost on Paul. The great power of God that was revealed to Pharaoh in an effort to humble him and to get him to recognize the greatness of God and to be obedient to that God and, and to be humble before that God that was revealed to Pharaoh that hardened his heart is the same great power that was revealed to Israel. You think about all of the great acts of God. 
the, the, the acts of, 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 of provision and, and, and the miracles. You think about all of the, 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 the power that, that was demonstrated and experienced by the people of Israel. And like Pharaoh, the nature of their heart was not that of butter, but that of clay out there on that sidewalk receiving the same rays of sun. And where some melted, some were hardened. And the irony cannot be lost on Paul. For many, not all, remember the remnant, for many, but not all, their hearts were hardened. You know, one of the things that we looked at in the, the, the last couple of weeks of our study of the, the four Gospels on our, in our Wednesday night class was that there was just so much that was manifested, so much power, so much of, 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 of God's presence, so much of God's will that was, was not just revealed through the ministry of Jesus, but it, but it came kind of to that, that tip of the spear at the, at the end of Jesus' life there at the cross. And at the end of the Gospels, the, the, the religious leaders of the Jewish people are saying, you know what, we've got we to figure out a way to, to make sure that the word of the resurrection, if it happens, never gets out. And so when the resurrection does take place at the end of the Gospels, and the events surrounding that resurrection are described to them, and you remember what they did, they posted a guard and they sealed that rock and, 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 and told that guard, nobody takes the body. And yet, the earthquake happens. The, angels come, the angel comes down. The seal is broken on that stone. The stone is rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. But the religious leaders, in knowing all of those facts that had been reported to them by the guards, made up a lie instead. They made up the lie of the stolen body. Gave money to those guards. Said, listen, if word gets out of this, we'll take care of it with, 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 with Pilate. But here's the story that you're going to circulate, and the gospel writers tell us that that story circulated until the very day that that gospel was being written, that even though the facts had been laid out to them, they decided to make up the lie instead. And so, in, in, in a very ironic and, and heartbreaking moment, what Paul is having to, to, to see is that Israel's heart was hardened like Pharaoh's. His own heart had, had been a, a, a troubled place. You know, at the end of Acts, when he's describing, when he's describing his, own, his own conversion, one of the things that he is, is, uh, is it, what's said to him by the risen Lord on, on the road to Damascus is, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Which means that when you goad something, you're trying to direct it. You're trying to get it to go in a certain direction. You're trying to move it down the road. And what Jesus is saying to him is, why are you kicking against the goats? Why are you trying to kick? Why are you trying to rebel against where the very place that you're being led to? And for Paul, he sees the, the, the incredible irony that having been trained the way that he was as a rabbi, and the zeal that he had for, for, for the, the, the nation of Israel and the ways of God, that he was hardened in his heart until he was humbled before the power of God on the road to Damascus. These are, I, I don't think, very easy words for Paul to write. 
But to make his point, Paul is going to appeal to Moses and the prophets and the law. He's basically going to be looking at the three segments of the Old Testament Scripture, which if you go to Barnes & Nobles or you go to a bookstore, you find a Jewish Bible. It's called Tanakh, T-N-K, which stands for Torah. The, uh, the, the Navim, which are the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which are the writings. And for Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and in Isaiah chapter 29, which is Moses and the prophets, there's a conflation of Scriptures kind of combined together. And what he writes in verse 8 is that God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And that quote comes from the end of Deuteronomy as Moses begs the people to really see what it is that God is doing. And in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 29, before he even gets to that in verse 4, he brings up, remember the lesson of Pharaoh. The same is true with Isaiah chapter 29. What is it that you really see happening in front of you? Do you have eyes that see? The second quote is taken from Psalm 69. And Paul says, and and David says this, May their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Psalm 69 is, is about a righteous man who is having an experience of persecution. Now, Jesus applies it to himself in John chapter 15 and verse 25. He says, um, and he's quoting verse 4 of Psalm 69, he says, They hated me without what? Reason. They hated me without reason. But the irony here, and Paul is trying to get across, is that it's not Israel who is being persecuted, but it's Israel who has become the persecutor. And it's on Israel that the judgment of God will come for unfaithfulness. Israel has not been rejected, but they are in a tough spot. But Israel, he says, is still a part of the chain of blessing. In verses 11-15, through 15, Paul describes a chain of blessing that kind of goes like this. The Jewish rejection leads to Gentile salvation. Jewish rejection leads to Gentile salvation. At least four times in the book of Acts, Luke records the Jewish rejection of the Gospel leading to Gentile acceptance. Let me give you uh, some examples here. In the first missionary journey... Uh, in Antioch, the city in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas say, chapter 13, verse 46, we had to speak the Word of God to you first, since you what? Since you what? Rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the whom? Gentiles. The second reference like this is when the church is being established in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. The third is in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and in Acts chapter 28, the fourth is in Rome. At least four times Luke records that the Jewish rejection of the gospel leads to an open door for the Gentiles to come in. But then number two, Gentile salvation, the fact that the Gentiles are now experiencing the the blessings of God and salvation that comes to the gospel, the benefits of the cross, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, the Gentile salvation leads to Jewish envy. Israel will see the blessings bestowed on the nations and turn to Christ. And Paul talks about this envy twice. 
of looking at the people who are in covenant relationship with God through the Gospel, through faith in Christ, and will become envious of that. Now that brings up an interesting thing that we don't have time to talk about tonight, but does anybody look at our faith and look at the way that we live out the ramifications of the faith, that the Gospel is so precious, that it's that treasure that we possess more than any other treasure in the world, and they become envious of that. To the point that they say, what in the world is going on with that church? That pe- those people are full of joy and peace and resources for life in those tough moments. And they, they, their, their fellowship and their harmony and their generosity and the smiles on their faces and, and, the, and the greatness of their strength in times of adversity. They're not dropping into the fetal position. I want a piece of that. The Gentile salvation leads to Jewish envy, and the Jewish envy, number three, leads to some being saved. The Gentile experience of God's grace is not a standalone experience, but one that involves the Jews. Therefore, the Gentiles are called to humility. And here Paul is beginning to get to the point of the spear. And he does this with two illustrations. The first one is the first fruits. And you know what that is. The first uh, piece of the harvest was dedicated to God and sacrificed to God, showing that that sacrifice or that that harvest belonged to Him. that, That there was the promise of more to come. The Jews, I think Paul is saying here, who have already come to faith are the first fruits. The first fruits, as you know, again, were always sacrificed to God as a way of expressing faith in the abundance of that harvest to come. The first fruits were always the promise of more to come. Jesus is of the resurrection, what? The first fruit. Which means that Jesus, as the first fruit of the resurrection, looks to the abundance of the resurrection, the promise of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection that is to come. But at the same time, the first fruits indicated that the whole harvest belonged to God and was therefore holy. It was His. And even though the Jewish nation is not faithful as a nation, that does not mean that they are outside the reach of the gospel and kept and kept away from faith in Christ. For Paul, the remnant of the Jews were the first fruit in, in, in the hope that more are coming down the road. But then the second illustration is the olive tree. Olive, olive trees are amazing things. Uh, uh, Daryl Hutchinson has a couple in his backyard that, that are growing and has convinced me that that's what I need to do with this piece of soil that I've kind of let rest for a couple of years in my own backyard. I've been tilling it and amending it and all of that. I think I'm going to put this beautiful olive tree there. One of the amazing things about olive trees is that they are nearly indestructible. There is, to this day, an olive tree down kind of at the, uh, the bottom of the, the Mount of Olives. You can go there and see it this day. It's near the Church of the Nations. Uh, down sort of at the bottom of the Kidron Valley on the side of that valley that is the Mount of Olives that is the product of roots of an olive tree that go all the way back to the time of Jesus. The tree itself is not that old. The tree is ancient. But the roots that, that form the base of that tree go back 2,000 years. 
Another amazing thing about olive trees is how branches can be grafted onto the tree so that the fruitfulness of the tree can be maximized. And obviously that would include some pruning. But hear what it is that Paul says. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be what? Superior to those other branches. And then you drop down to verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell. But kindness to you provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. In other words, Paul is saying the Gentiles by grace have been blended into God's Israel. The true Israel. Not the ethnic Israel, but God's Israel. The true Israel of faith. The Gentiles by grace have been blended into God's Israel by the Gospel. They were disobedient. They were absolutely outside of the will of God and it is only by the Gospel and trusting in that Gospel and faith in Christ Jesus through God's righteousness are they able to even come into God's presence. That is, not, that is not a call, that is not a reason, a motivation to be prideful. The Gentiles by grace have been blended into God's Israel and it's here that the mystery is revealed. The Gentiles have not replaced Israel, but they have been blended into the people of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul writes in verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of the mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, all Israel will be saved harkens back to what Paul has already written in Romans chapter 4, where he said, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by what? Grace. And may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the what? Faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, you remember what Paul says about the faith of Abraham. It was looking at, at, at his own body and looking at Sarah's body when God said, when I come back, you're going to have a son. It's going to be son through Sarah. And, and Abraham looks at his own body and looks at the body of Sarah. And there's no way that in his mind that that can really, really happen unless God does it. And in Genesis chapter 15, which Paul in Romans chapter 4 is looking back at, the Bible says... That he, in looking at what was going on, he believed God. He trusted God. He believed that what God's Word was saying was right and true. And he put his trust into it, and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as what? As righteousness. And so it's not only to those who are of the law, but to those who have the faith of Abraham, who trust in, in Christ. 
Abraham is the father of us all, and is written, I have made you a father of many what? Nations. The Gentiles must recognize the place they now occupy in the will of God. The gospel was not something Jew or Gentile, either group, was entitled to. It wasn't something that they were entitled to as if they had done something to merit it. Israel's disobedience, what he says in chapter 11, verse 28, that they were enemies. The gospel, Israel's disobedience opened the door for the Gentiles to come in. The Gentiles now play a part in bringing the Jews back to God through Christ. So he says in verse 24, After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. The mystery is to understand that the Gospel does not segment societies and people. That it was once Jewish and not Gentile, and now it's Gentile and not Jewish. The mystery to understand is that the Gospel does not segment societies and people, but brings them together, those who believe in Christ and those that live in Christ. The people who have been made the children of God have now also received brothers and sisters that are in Christ. Paul will write the same kind of thing to the church in Ephesus that's struggling with the same kind of issues. Jews and Gentiles trying to get along Jews with their background, Gentiles with their background, trying to be one in Christ. The, the prejudices and the biases and the problems, the practicalities of different kinds of people coming together from different cultures, sometimes speaking different languages, with different backgrounds, all kinds of different experiences, trying to live together. And Paul says, you need to understand this. This very thing that I'm in chains for, that's how much it's worth to me. How how precious and how much of a treasure it is to me. I'm willing to be in chains in this. I'm not, I'm not discouraged by that. And you don't be discouraged either because this is what's happening. The mystery, chapter 3 and verse 6, is that through the Gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You know all that means? That means that God is changing the world by destroying the effects of sin in your life in the lives of others through the Gospel. That God is doing through the Gospel the very thing that is impossible. Think about our own country for a minute. Think about what's happening on the East Coast and in the Midwest. People are not getting along and they're killing each other because of class differences and race differences and, and misinterpretations and misunderstandings and at least different perceptions and conceptions of what happens in a certain event. What the Gospel does is destroy that. To destroy that evil and to destroy the effects of that evil wherever the Gospel is heard and believed. It unites communities because it unites people. Regardless, can you imagine in the world that Paul is living in, two groups of people that are as different as Gentiles who grew up pagan and full of idols and all kinds of immorality and violence and those that are Jewish, they are now coming together in the body of Christ, in the body of Christ, in such a way that they are united and everything's different. 
Beginning in chapter 12, Paul's going to say, this is how you live because of the gospel. This, this is how you make the gospel tangible. It's through the practice of, of, of gospel living, of, 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 of gospel understanding that makes all the difference in the world. And that's why right now he just has to stop and he has to praise God for the depth of God's wisdom that, that this is what God is doing. That in all of these cities around the Roman world that where people were coming together for the very first time, all of these different cultures, you know what was happening in these cities? All, there was globalization in the first century A.D. that has not happened in, until our own time. Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, I'm in a board meeting for Great Cities Missions and talking about what's happening in South America. In about 10 to 15 years, 90% of South America is going to be living in a city. We are becoming urbanized and, and, and globally that's happening. People from all over the world were coming into Ephesus and coming into Antioch and coming into, in, in, into Rome and into Corinth and Thessalonica and Greece. People from all over the place. And they would build these walls around the city to keep the enemies out. But you know what else they had to do? They had to build walls inside of that city. There were quarters and there were segments of that city that were, that were uh, uh, people from Turkey and people from Greece and people from, from Italy and people from Palestine and people from Ethiopia and northern Africa. All these people were coming together and they had to be separated from each other by a literal wall to protect themselves from each other. Could you imagine walking through a marketplace and somebody doing something sort of innocently, a gesture or something, and then all of a sudden it's perceived by somebody from a different culture and you've got a riot on your hands. And what the gospel was doing was knocking down those walls of separation that were set up because of sin and because of, of everything else that entered into the world when that first Adam did not trust God's Word. And Paul is saying that this event took place. The death and the burial and the resurrection is just a theme that underlies everything that he writes in Rome. And, and Paul says, this event happened, and if you trust it to be true, and you dedicate your life as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, and your sins are washed away, and you receive that Spirit, that you become not only a different kind of a person in the world who is saved and in relationship with God. But you have a different effect by your very life in any community that you go into. That God in the cross is destroying the work of sin and the work of evil in the world that entered in Genesis chapter 3. That's what we're about. I mean, how do you, how do you get to the place in your understanding of the gospel like this and just go live an ordinary life? How do you understand the gospel and its ramifications and implications and the mission and just live a normal daily life? What God calls us to is something great. And what we're going to do now, we're out of time. Jeff's going to lead us in a song. Shepherds are going to be down here at the front. But we're going to praise God the way that God deserves to be praised for all of the greatness of His love and mercy and compassion to us. We sing right now because of the Gospel and what the Gospel has done for us all. Let's stand and sing.